Well, death is a very unpleasant subject, right? It's a subject that not very many of us want to talk about. Uh, and yet, uh, for believers, you know, we're, we're not really afraid of being dead, right? Being dead is no big deal. We know we're going to be in heaven. We're going to spend all eternity with Jesus Christ. So that's not the problem. Uh, the problem is we don't want to go through the process of dying, right? Nobody wants to go through the process of dying. But uh, unless Jesus comes first, that's something that we're all going to have to experience. And so uh, I just offer that to you as your Sunday morning encouragement uh, this morning, uh, that you're going to die. Uh, so... <laughs> But as we get older, you know, we ought to be thinking about our death and we ought to be preparing for it, right? Uh, uh, so I may sound more like a lawyer now than a pastor, but it's a good idea to have your last will and testament in order, right? So you know what's going to happen to your assets. To have your power of attorney and your advanced medical directive all set up. Uh, that's one way that we can be prepared for our coming death. But it's more than that, right? It, it means uh, straightening out our relationships, talking to our kids, uh, being sure that if there's any unresolved conflict or, or any hurt, uh, that, that we're able to patch those things up before it's too late. So we want to prepare our loved ones for our deaths as best as we can as we prepare ourselves. Now, that's not unusual. Everybody's been doing that like since the dawn of time, and Jesus was no different. Jesus wanted to do the same thing for his disciples. He knew that he was about to die, and he's in the upper room. It's the night before his death, and he was prepared for his death because he had known that it was coming. He knew that this day was coming, but his disciples were most certainly not prepared for his death. And so Jesus used this last night in the upper room uh, this very intimate setting where Jesus gathered with his 12 disciples, knowing that these were his last hours on earth. And he used these hours to prepare them for what was coming and what life was going to be like when he was gone. And yet they still couldn't understand. They couldn't comprehend what he was talking about. Uh, they expected a military Messiah, right? This is the Messiah. He was going to come and he was going to throw out Rome from Jerusalem and he was going to return Israel to the glory days that they enjoyed during the days of David and Solomon. So how could their Messiah die? Uh, they couldn't get this. This was beyond their grasp. Now, usually when you're talking to somebody, the, the last thing you say to somebody is the most important thing, right? Like, remember, and, and then you'd give them whatever it is you want them to remember. That's the last thing. And so Jesus now, he, he's in these last hours, and he's telling them the last things. He'd been with them for three plus years, but now these last things are the most important instructions that he gave. And so he offers the most humble of services and the most encouraging and uplifting teaching uh, this last night of his earthly life. So over the next four weeks in John chapter 13 and 14, we'll be talking about the foot washing. That's today. Next week, we'll be talking about Jesus predicting his betrayal by Judas. Uh, then we'll talk about Jesus' unity with the Father. That's the beginning of John chapter 14. And then the promise of the Holy Spirit, uh, the end of chapter 14. That's what we'll be doing for the next four weeks. And as we look at these passages, as we consider... Uh, this, what, what is called the upper room discourse, at least the first two chapters of it. I just want us to see uh, if we can really try to feel the weight of the upper room. Like we've never read John chapter 13 and 14 before, like, like for the very first time. Try to imagine the weight of this uh, as Jesus has only hours to go before he's going to be tortured and then killed. 
Now, over the past three plus years, he had won many followers, but he had also uh, created many enemies by his teaching and the things that he said. And he was about to die the most excruciating, painful death imaginable. And yet, with this, you know, right up ahead of him, just at the very next exit, uh, he knows this is coming. And the only thing that seems to be on his mind is to prepare his disciples to prepare them, to teach them, to comfort his disciples, because it was going to be them. These disciples were going to have to carry the gospel message after Jesus was gone. So today in the foot washing episode, we're going to talk about what Jesus knew, what Jesus did, and what Jesus taught. So first, what Jesus knew, uh, verses verses 1 through 4. Now before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil already having put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had handed all things over to him, and they had come from God and was going back to God, he got up from supper, laid his outer garments aside, and took a towel and tied it around himself. So uh, this is the last night of Jesus' life. Uh, Remember, on Sunday, the Sunday before, uh, he had come into Jerusalem on what is called either the Triumphal Entry or Palm Sunday. Uh, on Monday, he had cleansed the temple courts, right? The money changers, all the, the sheep vendors and the goat vendors. He had cleared all those out of there on Monday. And then Tuesday was a day of conflict, right? As the Pharisees and the scribes came up and continued to challenge his authority. By what authority are you doing these things? And they tried to dig up evidence to arrest him. Uh, Wednesday, there's nothing recorded as to what happened on Wednesday. But now here we are on Thursday, and, and now it's Thursday night. And Jesus is in the upper room. He's with his disciples. And it's the night before the Passover. The Passover is the next night. So why did Jesus have to die during the Passover? Why is it that Jesus said, now my hour has come? And that hour coincided with Passover weekend. Well, Jesus' death at the Passover is just one of the many ways that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law perfectly. uh, And in fact, fulfilled the entire Old Testament. Remember back in in the days of Moses, uh, God sent Moses and told Pharaoh, let my people go. And when Pharaoh wouldn't, God sent nine plagues on the Egyptians to make him release the Israelites. And when Pharaoh still refused to release the Israelites, uh, God sent a 10th plague, uh, the plague of the death of the firstborn of all of Egypt. And God told uh, Moses and the Israelites to protect yourselves. What you need to do is to slay a perfect, unblemished one-year-old lamb and paint the doorposts of your house with the lamb's blood. And then when the angel of death comes on this very night, uh, that angel will pass over your house and he will only uh, go to the homes of the Egyptians. And so in that way, the blood of the lamb saved Israel from the penalty of their sins and from the plague of death that was going to come. And after it was all over, when the plague of the, of the firstborn of Egypt was over and the uh, Israelites escaped through the Exodus, then uh, God told Moses to observe this Passover annually so that you will remember what God had done for you. So fast forward 1,500 years, and now Jesus is the final fulfillment of this Passover feast. The author of Hebrews talks about Jesus, a better sacrifice who offered not the blood of bulls and goats, 
for the penalty of sin, but offered his own blood once and for all to pay the penalty of sin. And so Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system, which is why we no longer have to sacrifice blood uh, or bulls and goats and and, uh, shed blood because Jesus's blood spilled once, paid for all of our sins, uh, past, present, and future for all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so just like the blood protected the Israelites during the first plague, over the plague of the firstborn. Now, Jesus's blood protects us. We're covered by his blood. God sees Jesus's blood and us covered in it. uh, And so he passes over us and we are saved from his wrath. So on this Thursday night, uh, before his death, while the other Jews were all preparing for the Passover, that was the next day, uh, Jesus was here in the upper room preparing himself to be the Passover lamb who would be sacrificed once and for all to atone for man's sin. And so the Passion Week ends at the Passover uh, because Jesus fulfilled the Passover and all that it pointed to. So now verse 1, Jesus knew, talking about things that Jesus knew, he knew that his hour had come. Several times in John's Gospel, we remember uh, the Pharisees, the scribes, others tried to lay their hands on Jesus to seize him, to do him bodily harm. Uh, And yet the Bible says, but his hour had not yet come. And then in chapter 12, uh, some Greeks came looking to see Jesus. And Andrew comes and tells Jesus, some some, some Greeks, some Gentiles are outside, they want to see you. And somehow that's the triggering event. Jesus then says, my hour has now come. And so Jesus now knows his hour has come. He knows that this is the last night of his life. And knowing his hour had come, he loved his own who were in the world. And he loved them to the end. Now, his own is an interesting phrase, right? There's lots of people in the world, uh, but he loved his own to the end. And so his own are the elect, those whom God has chosen since before the beginning of the world uh, to be saved uh, and to believe in Jesus. Now, of course, it's right to say that God loves everyone, right? God does love everyone uh, and that we're all his children in one sense. And yet God has a special love for his elect. These are his own. So in God's infinite sovereignty and wisdom and grace and love, he chose some. He chose some. Uh, And and we should never say to God, uh, well, that's unfair, God. You chose these and you didn't choose these. Uh, The miracle is not that God chose some and not others. The miracle is that because of who we are, that God chose any, right? None of us deserve this. And yet God gives us this miracle of grace. Jesus died to purchase Uh, every soul and those who believe in him and choose to believe uh, and are chosen by God to believe will be saved. And those who refuse to believe will be held accountable for rejecting Jesus. So he loved them to the end is a description of of the uh, extent of Jesus's love for his people, right? He, He loved them enough to sacrifice himself, to be tortured and die on a cross uh, for sinful people. This Greek word end is the word telos, which means also uh, to completion or to perfection. So he loved them to perfection. He loved them to completion. He loved them to the end. Uh, And so only Jesus's perfect and complete sacrifice uh, is enough to satisfy the wrath of holy God. And only our faith in the perfect, completed work of Jesus Christ is enough to satisfy God's wrath against us. That's why salvation is only possible if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
uh, if we've put our faith in ourselves uh, and our own work or anything else for our salvation, it's just not going to be good enough to satisfy holy God, right? Holy God demands uh, the sacrifice of one equal to him, Jesus, uh, one who was perfect, unblemished, Jesus, any sacrifice that we might want to offer or anything we might rely on that's less than Jesus could never satisfy holy God. Only Jesus lived a sinless life. Only Jesus could satisfy God's wrath. And so you and I, we have nothing to offer to God to pay the penalty of our sin. I wonder if we realize that sometimes. We're often very quick to mention our good works and look what I did and look who I loved and look how I did this thing. Uh, none of that is going to be good enough. Only uh, the blood of Jesus and only our dependence on the shed blood of Jesus is going to be good enough to satisfy God when we stand before him and he says, why should I let you in to my heaven? And if we say anything other than uh, only because of the blood of Jesus, we're going to be in big trouble. If the sentence, if our answer begins with the word I, it's going to be bad, right? Don't say I, unless you're following it with I trust Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. That's the only way that we're going to get in. So by the night of the Last Supper, uh, in the upper room, in this, in this very intimate setting with Jesus uh, and the 12 disciples, the devil had already put it into Judas's heart to have him betray Jesus. Now, how can that happen, right? How can that happen? Well, the only way it can happen is because God gave Satan permission to put that into Judas's heart. God had to give the devil permission because Satan has no power except for what the power God allows him to have. And so Satan thought he was about to win this gigantic victory, right? I'm, 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 I'm moving pieces and, and Jesus, my enemy, is going to go to the cross. And yet while he thought he was winning, he was just a pawn in God's uh, game to, to get Jesus where Jesus needed to go and to fulfill his own plan. Because Jesus had to go to, to the cross to satisfy God's wrath, to pay the de sin debt that we all owe. And so God used Satan and these human instruments, uh, to, uh, to, uh, like the scribes and the Pharisees and Judas, uh, to, to, to move everything into place uh, so that the plan would be fulfilled. And so uh, we may look at that and say, well, how is it fair to Judas and the scribes and Pharisees that they're going to pay the penalty? Well, God didn't make them do it. They chose voluntarily to do it. And so God will hold them responsible and he'll hold Judas responsible for voluntarily betraying Jesus. So Jesus knew his hour had come. He also knew that God had handed all things over to him and he knew that he had come from and was going back to God. So Jesus had full knowledge of what was going to happen, right? There were no surprises here. There was nothing that Jesus didn't know was happening. Uh, he had full knowledge of what was going to happen, and he had the full power to stop what was going to happen. And so it's not that things were spiraling out of control for Jesus, right? Like he lost control of what was going on. No, God had handed all things over to him. He was in complete control of everything that was going on, the timing and the mechanics and everything. Jesus was in control of it all. And so all knowledge, all power, all authority, and the freedom of choice. Jesus still retained the freedom of choice. And so when we consider what happened uh, this Holy Week, this Passion Week, we really need to keep that in mind. Jesus had every opportunity not to go to the cross. Uh, he could have chosen at any time to say, no, I'm not going to do this. Uh, but then he would not have been able to purchase our salvation. And even when he prayed in the garden that there might be another way 
there was another way for Jesus to avoid this, but there was no other way to purchase the salvation of mankind. So Jesus's goal was not to exercise his own freedom of choice and his own unlimited power. His choice was to conform to God's will, which was to go to the cross to buy our salvation. Now imagine you were on death row, right? And you knew that the clock was ticking. It's eight o'clock at night. They're bringing you your last meal. You're going to be executed at midnight. And then you have the power to stop it, right? Somehow you have the power to stop this. What would you do? I mean, we'd all, right? We'd all do whatever we had to do to live. We would stop it. Jesus had that power too, but he didn't stop it. He went forward to the cross. He needed to complete the plan that God the Father and he had devised since before they even created the world to save mankind and to bring glory from God. So instead of halting these events, knowing all that was coming, uh, he got up from supper and he washed their feet. Isn't that incredible? So that's what Jesus knew. Let's talk about the foot washing. Let's talk about what Jesus did. Verses 5 to 11. Then he poured water into the basin and began washing the disciples' feet and wiping them with the towel which he had tied around himself. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not realize right now, but you will understand later. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no place with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, otherwise he is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. It was for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. Well, foot washing was an absolute necessity in Israel, right? They walked on dirt paths. They wore open-toed sandals. By the end of every day, their feet were disgusting. You wouldn't want them in your house. And so washing someone else's feet was uh, the most humble of chores. Most people would wash their own feet when they entered into a house. Uh, a wealthy family might have a servant who would wash your feet for you, but almost never, uh, unless you really wanted to show specific honor to somebody, would the owner of a house get down and, and wash uh, the, guest, uh, the, the feet of a guest or, or anyone on some lower socioeconomic uh, rung of the ladder. Uh, but this is what Jesus did, knowing that his death was only hours away. This is what he did. He takes off <clears throat> his outer garment lays that aside, uh, assumes the posture of a servant or a slave, and stoops down to wash their feet. And that's why Peter objected to what was going on. Uh, Peter knew that Jesus was greater culturally and in every way than Peter was, and that from a cultural perspective, Jesus should never stoop down to, to, to wash anybody's feet. And so Peter shows this great mixture of humility and brashness. He says, uh, you're going to wash my feet, Lord, recognizing that Jesus is greater than he. Uh, and so that shows his humility. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus told him he'd understand later why he was doing such a thing. So contrast what Jesus knew on the one hand with what Peter knew on the other hand, right? Jesus knew everything. He knew his hour had come. He knew he was going to be back with, the, with uh, God in heaven. And Peter didn't know anything, right? He couldn't understand why uh, Jesus would even do this, this humble act of service. He understood cognitively that Jesus was about to stoop down and wash his feet, but he didn't understand the why of it. Why would Jesus stoop down and wash his feet? So uh, he's humble in a way, but then in his brashness, he says, uh, you will never wash my feet, Lord, right? And so this is, this is Peter always uh, speaking first, 
thinking later, foot in mouth, uh, getting himself into trouble with Jesus from time to time. Uh, but he flatly refuses to allow Jesus to wash his feet. So Jesus had to explain further, uh, more knowledge being dispensed to his disciples on this last night. If I do not wash you, you have no place with me. Now, some have thought this to be a reference to water baptism and that water baptism is a necessity for salvation. Uh, But Jesus wasn't talking anymore about water baptism or feet washing even. Uh, He's talking, he's using this metaphor of foot washing to talk about the spiritual baptism uh, that we undergo to be saved. Uh, And Peter was a little slow to catch on. He he wasn't catching it. He wanted to be fully united with Jesus. So uh, when Jesus said, you have no place with me unless I wash your feet, well, you know, Peter's looking to get dunked, right? He wants the whole thing. He wants to be fully united with Jesus. Wash my hands, wash my head, wash everything. Uh, So Peter's still thinking about uh, what Jesus is talking about on this physical plane. Uh, And and Jesus is always, of course, a step above speaking on the spiritual plane, giving lessons on spiritual cleanliness. And so Jesus says to him, "If, if you've been bathed, you only need to wash your feet. So you can understand that Peter's a little confused about what's going on at this point, but, but, Peter, but, but Jesus draws it out a little bit more. Uh, he's talking about this one-time baptism that we experience when we are saved, uh, that happens when we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And in that moment, uh, God declares us spiritually clean, and he saves us from the penalty that we deserve for our sins. And so that's what Jesus was talking about when he said, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. So uh, there's some interplay uh, with the word washed and the word bathed in the original Greek. And so uh, this word that is used most of the time is the, the, for the word wash is this word nipto. And that's used in John uh, 13, 5 and 6, 8, 12 and 14. Uh, but then he's talking about in John 13, 10, he uses this word luo, which means to bathe all over. Uh, a little bit different word. So if we could say it kind of in English, uh, when a sinner trusts God, or when trust, trusts Jesus as his Savior, he is luoed, right? He is bathed all over, uh, and God forgives his sins. The believer is saved. But the believer still has a sin nature, right? We still have to walk in this world, and we're going to be blemished by the world. We're going to be tarnished by sin because of our sin nature. So the believer who has been washed all over, who has been luoed, is saved once, but still needs to be niptoed every now and then, right? That means confessing your sin, uh, so that the sins that we commit after we have been saved, uh, God washes those sins away too. Uh, Because we're going to live in this world, we're going to be stained by it, and so we're going to need a washing every now and then, and when we sin, we confess our sins, and God washes those sins away too. But let's just be clear that the sins we commit after salvation can never cost us our salvation, right? Once we are saved, we are always saved. We've been washed, we've been luoed by the blood of Christ, we've been bathed all over, and we're cleansed forever. But our daily sins can impede our walk with God, right? And so we we don't want to impede our walk with God. We don't want to incur God's discipline. Uh, So that's why we confess our sins. We we wash them, uh, niptoeing our sins, as it were, even though we're already saved. So that's the distinction there that Jesus is trying to explain to Peter, and Peter's a little slow to catch on. So they'll get it eventually, right? The Holy Spirit will come and he will bring all these things to remembrance and and teach you uh, all these things. Uh, But for now, they're a little bit still in the dark. So uh, Peter is clean, right? We've said that already. But Judas was not. That's what Jesus said. Now, Judas 
had followed Jesus for three years, right? He had been a disciple for just about as long as the rest of them, but he never believed in Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Judas saw Jesus as this political tool that he was going to use and be part of, to be part of the, the, the great Calvary that overthrew Rome, and then uh, Jesus would, or Judas would get this incredible position in Jesus' cabinet, uh, reap all the economic benefits of that, and whatever other benefits came with it. <clears throat> he saw this as a means of gain for him, Jesus as a means of gain. And Jesus, I'm sorry, Judas saw the same miracles that the rest of them saw, right? And Judas heard the same teaching that the rest of them heard, and yet his response was different. Uh, He's the one who decided that he wasn't really buying in because this was taking too long. Judas was impetuous. He wanted it done now. So uh, perhaps Judas was trying to force Jesus into action by betraying him, by, by saying, well, if I, if I put this guy in trouble, you know, then he's going to have to do something. He's going to have to rebel against these authorities. Uh, so maybe that's why he betrayed Jesus. Or, or maybe he just gave up. Maybe he just said, this guy is not who I thought he was going to be and lost patience with him. But either way, he was willing to betray Jesus to the Jewish authorities. And so this is Judas's outlook, his, his view of Jesus. And this leads us to a very important question, and that is, who is Jesus to us? That's the single most important question we'll ever have to answer, right? Who is Jesus to us? Judas wanted earthly power, uh, status, money, uh, whatever might have come with Jesus, right? He was like, like Jesus was a side dish to all this great stuff that, 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 that Judas was going to get by following Jesus. So he wanted to use Jesus to get position, place, and power. So the question is, do we want Jesus or do we want what Jesus can give to us? And if we only want what Jesus gives to us, well, that's a dangerous place to be because Jesus doesn't always give us exactly what we think we want, right? Uh, sometimes we get what, exactly the opposite of what we want. And that's why Jesus called his disciples and said, you disciples, you're going to have to lay down your own lives and follow me uh, because the life of a disciple is not easy. Uh, the word disciple means a follower and a learner. And some lessons are hard to learn, right? Sometimes you have to suffer a little bit to learn the lessons that God has for us. And sometimes God gives us difficult circumstances because he's trying to teach us some kind of important lesson. Uh, And each lesson that God has for us is important. And if we have to suffer to learn it, well, then that's okay because we're trying to become more like Christ. And when we're praying and we, we ask God for something specifically, sometimes we get the exact opposite of the thing we're praying for. And we say, God, that's not what I asked for. I asked for this. You gave me this. But sometimes we're confused or, or we think we know what's best for us. And on the other hand, God knows what's best for us. And he gives us what we need rather than what we think we want because he wants us to become more like Christ. And you know many stories in your own lives of people who have been saved because of some calamity that God has brought in their lives, right? Some unbeliever has this terrible thing happened to them, and they turn to God and say, God, please help, and somehow they end up getting saved, right? And for you, you've been believers for a long time, all of you. Things have happened to you that you wish hadn't happened. Uh, And then in retrospect, you can look back on these things and say, oh God, now I understand why that happened. You're trying to teach me this. I understand this lesson now. Thank you. You, You've strengthened my faith. Uh, You've prepared me for the next time when I'm going to be in for something that I didn't ask for. So God uses everything we allow and everything we experience to bring us to Christ and to make us more like him. 
So the question, do we want Jesus or do we only want what Jesus provides? The wise disciple always wants Jesus. Even when we don't get what we think we want, he gives us what we need. And Judas thought only about the temporary, right? The earthly, the physical. What Jesus gives us is eternal uh, and it's, it's, it's spiritual and, and it's heavenly. And so we have to consider what's, what are our priorities? Well, what's important to us? We should never sacrifice the eternal for the temporary uh, or sacrifice the, the spiritual for the physical because eternity lasts a lot longer than this life. And so we have to have, have those priorities in order. We have to know what we want. We have to be sure we want Jesus and not necessarily what he provides. Uh, after Jesus finished this foot washing, he took his place at the table and he began to explain because the disciples didn't get it. And so we've talked about what Jesus knew, what Jesus did. Now let's look at what Jesus taught, verses 12 through 17. Then when he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are correct for so I am. So if I, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example so that you also would do as I did for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So a minute ago, we talked about what Jesus knew uh, contrasted with what Peter knew. Now Jesus, Jesus asks if his disciples knew what he had done for them. Now, obviously, he knew, they all knew that he had washed their feet, but, but they didn't know why. They didn't understand what it meant. And so the disciples, they had some time to think about it, you know. Think about what happened in the upper room. Um, <clears throat> Jesus fills up a wash basin. He takes off his outer garments. He's dressed in an undergarment. He's got to move that wash basin, base, wash basin from person to person to person as he goes around the room doing this foot washing task. So let's say it takes two and a half minutes per disciple to wash those disciples' feet. That's a half hour, 12 times two and a half. 30 minutes of these disciples watching Jesus go around the room, moving this wash basin around and washing these uh, disciples' feet. That's a long time to think about what's going on here. And I wonder what the mood in the room was. Like, what is he doing? Is he gonna do this to me? Am I gonna let him do this to me? How can this man do this to me? after considering what I am. And after Jesus washed all 12 disciples' feet, including Judas's feet, then he said, do you know what I have done for you? The word know means understand. Do you understand what I have done for you? And no one answered. Silence, right? They all looked around the room at each other. And so Jesus says, now he's got to explain it to them. They didn't understand anything, not the foot washing, not the predictions of his death, the predictions of his resurrection. They were totally in the dark. They had no idea what was going on. So Jesus explained to them like he was talking to a bunch of five-year-olds, right? Uh, so he says, look, you guys, you call me teacher and Lord. And right, you're right to do that. I, I am greater than you. Uh, you are lesser than I am. And, and they knew it. Th these terms that they used for Jesus showed that they knew that he was superior to them. And in their world, the greater did not serve the lesser, right? The lesser serves the greater. That's just how it works in the world. But Jesus was about to turn their whole worldview upside down, right? To flip the thing completely. If the greatest of all washes their feet, well, they should adopt the same posture of humility and wash the feet of others. 
So that was mind-blowing, especially in that economy. That, that would never be the case. But Jesus was constantly blowing their minds and flipping things over on them, what they would normally believe. Remember the entire Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say, right? Completely flipping what they had thought was true. So after Jesus finished explaining these things, he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, there are lots of things that you and I know that we should do, right? Uh, we should love better. Uh, we should give more sacrificially. Uh, we, should, we should love even the unlovable uh, as hard as that is to do, right? And we should, uh, we should always try to, to put others before ourselves, but we're normally too interested in our own comfort or, or we won't condescend to stoop to serve somebody who we think happens to be less than us somehow, whether economically or, or for whatever reason we think that we have, or have exalted ourselves over somebody else. But we have to remember Jesus who said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And Jesus wants us to have that same attitude. So that's what we have to think about. Like, how does this work? How, is this just limited to foot washing? Uh, is it only foot washing? Do we have to wash everybody's feet? What exactly is Jesus saying here? So I don't think that Jesus wants us to, you know, pull people over on the street and say, hey, I need to wash your feet. I don't think that's what he's getting at. I think he's talking about just, he said, I'm giving you an example that you should do to others. Uh, so it doesn't have to be foot washing. It could be any way that somebody needs to be served. Uh, we as Christians should be, uh, of all people, most attuned to look out for the needs of others and try to meet those needs the best that we can. Uh, to serve others. Blessed are you if you know these things, if you do them. Uh, Jesus used this word blessed. Uh, the word is makarios in Greek. Uh, we see it throughout the Sermon on the Mount. But blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn. Uh, that means, the word means, that, that God has looked upon that person with divine favor. Uh, and we feel it. We feel God's divine favor. So Jesus loves when we serve, and he loves when we serve with unfair. Uh, selfish motives, and he looks upon us with divine favor when we do. And now, just think about this upper room. He's, he's washed his feet, right? It's the most humble of menial tasks that he could perform. But the next day, he was going to serve them in a much, much greater way. He was going to do much more than wash their feet, right? He was going to die for them and for us in the most selfless act of service ever performed. So as we prepare our hearts for the coming uh, Good Friday in a few weeks and then Easter Sunday, which will follow, uh, how can we think about applying these truths that Jesus taught to the disciples to our own lives? The first thing I say is this, uh, a heart of service is a heart of humility. You know, we, uh, are, we live in a very consumer society, right? And, and we can adopt this consumer mentality. And, and we need to overcome that consumer mentality if we're going to be uh, the model of service and love that Jesus taught. And so often we're conditioned to think that, that others exist to serve our needs, right? And we're bombarded on television with ads that say, you need this, you deserve this, you've earned this, right? Uh, they're trying to sell us something. And, and anybody who is trying to sell us something does not have our best uh, needs or best uh, ideas in mind. But Jesus does. Uh, he wants us to serve others for the glory of God, uh, for their, for the people that we're serving, for, for their benefit, and for ours. So what would the world look like if we adopted this attitude of humility rather than this attitude that we ought to be served? Instead of demanding what we think we're entitled to, we would completely flip that. We'd go out of our way to meet the needs of others. 
Uh, so like the disciples, let's just remember that Jesus uh, came uh, not to be served, but to serve, not just in washing feet, but in dying for sins. And we won't condescend often to do anything that we think is beneath us. But think about that. Our God, who created the whole universe, became a man, lived a perfect life, and then died on a cross for the very sins of the people who were killing him and for our sins as well. How much more humble can you get? And so if we're, if we're broken by our sin, if you and I are broken by our sin and the price that Jesus had to pay to atone for it, well, if that has happened to us, if we've truly been broken, then God has prepared us to be the servants that he wants us to be. So a heart of service is a heart of humility. Serve as, as an example for others. You know, our kids and our grandkids should have us as a model of what humble service looks like. If we're walking with Jesus and we're serving him with joy, then they should see our lives as, as something that they want to imitate. But on the other hand, if we serve because we have to, out of duty and obligation, if it's a, sh- a chore and a burden and we make that obvious to everybody who is around us, well, there's nothing attractive about that, right? They won't want to serve either. So joyful service is contagious. So put a smile on, uh, have fun with it, invite other people to join in our service, and then our kids, our grandkids, and others around us uh, will want to joy, uh, joyfully serve as well. So serve as, as an example to others, and then finally, serve to save others. You know, joy comes from knowing that we're saved and that nothing can ever take our salvation from us. And so while we live here on earth, we're, we're trying the best we can to, to share the gospel by word and by deed. Uh, and we're trying to bring as many people to faith as we can. And so serving people with joy, uh, especially unbelievers, leaves them wondering, why is this person doing this for me? Why is this person serving me? Uh, I've never done anything from that for that person. I didn't ask for anything from them. Why are they serving me? Uh, I remember being in Haiti uh, right after the earthquake in 2010, uh, and there were, I don't know, 10, 15 of us down there, and it was 95 degrees, and we had shovels, because they have no uh, backhoes or anything like that. We're digging shovels in clay. The the dirt is very much like Texas dirt. Digging out these trenches uh, to rebuild a school and a church on this particular piece of property. Uh, And the locals were all there under the shade, drinking water and looking at us and kind of laughing, but saying, why? Why are they doing that? And they asked us, why are you doing that? Uh, And so that's our opportunity. That was our opportunity to say to them, uh, we do it because of Jesus, because of what Jesus humbly did for us by dying on a cross for our sins. Now we humbly serve you to imitate Jesus. And that leaves them something to think about, right? So who knows if any or how many people were saved, but just by watching our service. And every time we serve, you and I, whatever we're doing, when we bring food to the food bank or or however you serve in your own lives, that's an opportunity for somebody to see the love of Jesus Christ and for them to be saved. So we serve to save others as well. Service should follow our gratitude for salvation. So do we know these things? Uh, If we do, blessed are are we if we do them. Let's pray. Lord God, We thank you for this incredible example that Jesus set for us, Lord, uh, with his death only hours away, uh, facing the most horrible death imaginable that that he poured out his love on his disciples, uh, Lord, before he died, and Lord, that he died for them and for us, just the most incredible act of humility ever done, Lord, and we are so grateful for it. 
Lord, I pray that you will uh, use this foot washing uh, story episode in the Bible to, to teach us what you would have for us, Lord, and to, to help us more to be more mindful of opportunities to serve, to love others like Jesus did. Lord, we just lift these things up to you and we pray them in Christ's matchless name. Amen.